You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week, we chatted to Sean Chung, who is the co-founder of Kuala Lumpur's first speakeasy bar, Omakase and Appreciate. We chatted to him about what it was like to bring the speakeasy concept to the Malaysian capital and how he shaped the scene there. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the grades really became the grades. So sit back and enjoy. Hi, this is uh, Sean Chong. I'm the co-founder of Omakase and Appreciate in Kuala Lumpur. Great. Thank you very much for having us over into your amazing bar. We will be working here tonight, myself and Edu. It's great that you have managed to have the time to stop and talk to us. You were telling us a little bit about uh, how much of an institution your bar is here in Kuala Lumpur because of uh, the timing you opened and the fact that really you were pioneering the cocktail scene here. Would you like to tell us a bit more about how everything started for you? Well, first and foremost, to call us an institution, I'm not sure. We're, <laughs> we're just a bar. We're still trying very much to do business on a daily basis. But yes, what we have pioneered and given to the Kuala Lumpur or Malaysian industry is quite a bit. So how that all started was basically, you can trace it back maybe 10 years ago to when I started in the hotel scene. So I started off learning hospitality as a degree. And then eventually getting my first job in the hotel, Hilton Kuala Lumpur. Through that, I got exposure to competitions in bars and bartending and kind of things. And along the way, I met my partner, Carl too. But it wasn't until a few years later that we actually came together to join forces and said, hey, let's open a bar together. So yeah, that's actually a lot more history to that, but that's what it is. Well, do you remember which one was your first competition? The first as an industry professional. Yeah, I guess so, yes. <laughs> okay, because I, I've competed in the a, in a college stage before. but Okay, no, no, industry professional then. Industry professional uh, would be Finlandia Vodka 2008. Okay, how was it? Intimidating. Uh, okay. <laughs> because I was like kind of fresh out of college, went into the industry, got my job at a hotel, and somehow I got to represent the hotel. And then you're up against basically industry veterans mm-hmm. that had experience four years, five years, six years. They were competing in it. So I was just a, really a, a small fry. <laughs> so when you started with these cocktail competitions, at what hotel were you working? Uh, Hilton Kuala Lumpur. Okay. And uh, how was the bar scene at the time? What were the drinks? Like, Did you have any bar that inspired you at the time in uh, Kuala Lumpur? Okay. So let's give it a time frame. This was 2008. In 2008, there was no considered bar scene. And Kuala Lumpur was still very much a clubbing scene. So there were many clubs in Kuala Lumpur that were doing party drinks. So Long Island iced teas, big jugs of daiquiris, big jugs of margaritas. And hotel bars were starting to have some sort of mixed drink program. Okay. So I was lucky in Hilton Kuala Lumpur, we had a bar manager who would know did fruity margaritas, fruity daiquiris, different variations of Long Island iced teas. So it was still clubby drinks, but a bit more upscale. Uh-huh. At that time, yeah, there wasn't really a cocktail culture per se. So where did you, where were you getting inspiration for ultimately what shaped you into becoming who you are today? I would have to say Diageo World Class. Really? Yes. So as I said, I started off in a hotel. In 2008, I was actually a poolside waiter. Okay. And then I transferred down to a fine dining waiter. And Diageo World Class happened in Malaysia in 2009. 
2009 was also the year I won the first Diageo World Class. Okay. As a restaurant waiter. Okay. Yeah. So bartending had always been a hobby. Somehow, I think because from younger days, uh, my dad allowed us to taste alcohol, and somehow I got an interest. I I think by watching flair videos, maybe. So I got an interest there, but I never thought of it bartending to become a profession. So after. Actually, being involved with the Diageo World Class program, getting the trainings, like being exposed to different aspects of bartending, like the craft bartending scene at that time was really new to me. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. this is possible. So I joined the hotel industry, thinking that one day or many days in my career, I will be able to travel, I will be able to move from property to property. But after learning from being involved with Diageo World Class, that we get to promote our craft through. Uh, traveling or with traveling mm-hmm. uh, was awesome. I'm like, I love drinks. I love traveling. So I think this is a good mix. So yeah, in 2009, after the Diageo World Class competition, the food and beverage director was like, okay, you're no longer in a fine dining restaurant. We can move you down to the bar. So I can say professionally, I've been in the bar since 2009. Okay. And after that, uh, you moved to the bar. Uh, what sort of role did you have in the bar? Were you bartending or? I was... The bar supervisor, bar okay. team leader, mm-hmm. which is a, was a complete, I want to say, it was a different world for me. Because not only was I transferring from a restaurant environment to a bar environment, but I didn't really have the bar experience because I was in the restaurant. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So it must have been quite challenging. Yeah, because, it was challenging yeah. to actually learn the proper bar operations from doing stock take, as simple as stock take, to managing the ingredients of the bar, to, of course, making cocktails and uh, general drinks. But I was also promoted to a team leader. So I had to learn how to guide the rank and file, the team members. So it was very, it was a very different uh, world when you are in a different position. Did you have anyone helping you or mentoring you throughout this process? Of course. So I always credit the hotel for giving me my first hand on the job experience in the terms of learning how the bar works how you actually coordinate with different departments from the hotel to get what you need done. Uh-huh. And also, the assistant managers, and I was lucky to have, at the time, a chief sommelier by the name of Roderick Wong. So he kind of guided me to understand how to manage people, how do you engage the customers. So yeah, I did have mentors. I also had a head bartender who was bartending for many more years than me before okay. that, who gave me my old school teaching so to speak. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, because it must be quite a, quite a challenge having had the chance to go through this competition with very little ball experience and then having to come back to a team and then you sort of have to insert yourself within it, right? Yes, yeah. correct, correct. So basically, you are here bartending and everything. At what stage did you think, okay, now it's time for me to mo- open my bar? Was it like an organic thing or did anything speed up the process? Uh, no, it wasn't really organic. But like every bartender, once you start bartending and you get the bug. One of your dreams would be to open your own bar. Of course. But it wasn't in a sense like instantly. For me, I think it was, it took a few years to gain life experiences that kind of sparked the idea of opening my own bar. So how I came to that stage is basically, uh, I won the Agile World Class 2009. 2010, I didn't do too well because I was busy with my career, learning the actual bar operations. Uh, so I was more concentrated on my career rather than the competition. But in 2011, I joined World Class again, and I won again. Okay. So I did represent Malaysia to New Delhi. 
for the global finals. But again, going into that competition, I was quite lacking in experience in terms of understanding the uh, bar and cocktails. Although I was, I had good training for that short period of time, but it was going to New Delhi actually opened up my eyes because you go, you meet all these people, the creme de la creme from the world, you know, go to the world-class finals. And when you talk to them, the knowledge that they have, the experience, the technique, I feel I'm really lacking. So, of course, among Malaysia, that doesn't really have cocktail culture, I was the best, but not as near compared to other nations. Who won 2011? Uh, Manabu Otake. Ah, it's Japan. true, it's true, it's true. First Japanese winner, was yes, it? Yes, correct. Yeah. You mentioned it was very challenging for you, uh, world class in uh, New Delhi. How did you fare? Did you fare like reasonably well or did you realize I really need to cover some ground here? I felt I did well. Uh, I felt I did well. But once you take a step back and you and I literally look at it, I said, I'm no good. Okay. I'm not good. So coming back to Malaysia after the competition, I felt like I was inadequate. Like okay. I already have two world-class champion titles. But if you tell ask me to name you 50 classic cocktails, I would fail at that point of time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I okay. would fail. So in 2011, when I came back from New Delhi, I didn't have a job. So I turned to freelance. Freelance in terms of doing events, doing consultation. So building some simple menus for restaurants, for bars. But still, it was still always kind of making drinks that were non-substantial. No, okay. It doesn't have a back, backbone, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And when it comes down to it, events, yes, we're paying good money. But I still felt something missing is me in me as a bartender. Like, the core, the foundation was very lacking. Like, I can create cocktails, no problem. But what if someone asked me, can you make a perfect old-fashioned? Or can you do five variations of a Manhattan? What's the difference between using a sweet vermouth and dry vermouth? You know, those are things I could not answer. And at that point, there would be no bar in KL that would allow, the, uh, allow me the freedom to learn these small, small details. Luckily, in that period of time, in 2012, uh, there was a bar that opened called Tate. Okay. It was the first speakeasy in Kuala Lumpur. And that's where my partner Carl, he got his job there. And he kind of championed a cocktail program over there. And while I was freelance, I had a lot of free time. Uh, Every once in a while, Carl would be like, hey, I have something new, come and try it. So I did. And I guess that's how we built that, that friendship. And again, I could try all these products, but I had nowhere to practice. So finally, uh, we got our heads together and we said, we need to build a cocktail bar so that myself and yourself can train to do old fashions, do margaritas, do the best Long Island iced tea in KL. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, things have changed, haven't yeah. they? <laughs> yeah. So the idea wasn't to build the industry in the first place. That was not the first idea. It was so that we could train ourselves to be better bartenders. But at this stage, you mentioned that there is no cocktail scene, meaning there is no cocktail bars. But if there is no cocktail bars, means that you don't have guests asking for cocktails. Am I right? So well, at, at this stage, was the clientele into cocktails or not? Where, where I come from, when, when I started to bartend, which is in 2007-8, same as you did, the only thing that people ordered were Apro Spritz, uh, Mojitos, and you'll have like a Negroni Everbloom Moon, right? So 
if I wanted to know how to make a Manhattan, I just simply couldn't because no one ordered it, right? Is Was this the same thing here? It was the same. It was the same. It's just basically still the era of sweet and sour mix. Exactly. So, yeah, powders. Yeah. In terms of cocktails, you would wait that special someone to pick that cocktail from the menu and then you'd be so excited that you made it. But no one would go up to a bar and just order off the menu. Like, for example, uh, I was quite lucky, I think, in a sense, when I was working in Hilton Kuala Lumpur. Uh, they had good following of Caucasian guests, uh-huh. Europeans, Americans, who did know their cocktails. So they would ask for, like, whiskey sours. Once in a blue moon, I would get old-fashioned. Uh but the old, old hotel old fashioned is the bastardized one with the cherry and the orange. Oh yeah, uh, the where you muddle yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fruit salad inside fruit the glass. Salad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there were orders of, of cocktails, but it wasn't a thing. Until Tate happened. Okay. Tate happened and basically through Carl's work, people were getting interested with the cocktails. That was kind of go to bar at the time, 2011, 12. That was kind of go to bar. But still, it was still very much ordering from the menu. Yeah. So I became exposed with cocktails because I moved to the UK and because I had a cocktail book at home and I wanted to learn how to make drinks. Was your main uh, source of inspiration purely world class as a competition? It was the catalyst, definitely. Okay. Because through world class, I got to travel. I got to see bars in Singapore. Got to see bars in different countries for example going to Delhi and even Delhi was kind of coming up a little bit in cocktails but just meeting people through the world class program and then further wanting to improve then you go on to Google you go on to YouTube you gain inspiration cocktail books of course they're very important who was the person that you have identified as your uh, idol throughout this period of time when you were you, you mentioned world class you mentioned other people around you, but what was any bartender that you looked at and you thought, oh man, this is the dude? Okay, before World Class, to be honest, I had no idea who were the cocktail gurus. Maybe the only one that I kind of know of was Theo de Groff. Okay. Because everyone would get out of mixing book of or course. essential cocktail book. Yeah. So I think Theo de Groff. So when I went to the Agile World Class in 2011, I was very looking forward to meet Theo de Groff. And of course, through the World Class program, when you get introduced to the judges, then you hear of uh, Peter Dorelli, who's like the legend from the South. The one and, one and only. The one and only. But I think the one that really uh, became my idol was Hidesugo Ueno. Oh, Ueno. bueno. Because I was into the Japanese technique and I was looking for inspiration of which Japanese uh, mentor or Japanese figure that I could follow yeah so until today it is still Uenosa he's a fantastic bartender is he we yeah. talked about earlier on about star bar and you know the bar where Ueno used to work and high five and all those bars and you know they are incredible in terms of what they managed to deliver and the amount of dedication they have right yes so we fast forward you decided you open your own bar now how did you go about it because you have the idea I don't know if you had the money but most people do not so how did you decide let's open the bar and just walk us through it. Okay, so opening a bar is never easy. Especially when you don't have the money. <laughs> I didn't have the money. We had an idea. Kala and I, we discussed about it. We had a lot of fancy things we wanted to do with a space. But we just didn't have the money. 
the way we went about it was, of course, we had to decide on, yes, we want to do this. Who we wanted to bring into the business was kind of feeling around. What I mean to say about feeling around is there were options of joint venture with the building owner, with another business owner. We also tried engaging someone who was interested in bars and we knew possibly had money. But in the end, we found that it's not so easy, especially when you're kind of nobody. When I say nobody, is you're in the bar industry in Kuala Lumpur. Even if you went to a bank to try to get a loan, it's incredibly difficult because you're a high-risk business. Of course. You know, you're alcohol in a Muslim country. So bank was out of the question. Partners, we didn't sit well with this because we believe in that personal aura. If yeah, you don't yeah. have it, uh, I don't think it's good. Finally, I think it was the Chinese New Year 2012. My uncle, who was in town, and on the last day before he left back to uh, New Zealand, he's residing in New Zealand, I just had to try my luck and said, hey, I want to open the bar. Would you help me? And he's an open-minded guy because he knows business. And he said, yes, I will help you to start off on your, uh, on your business. Did you pay him back? Yes, we did. So that's a scary thing, of course, as a business. You always think about when you're going to pay back. And it took us one year from idea to realization of the physical bar that we opened in April 2013. So in fact, next week we will be six years old. Congratulations on that. Thank you, thank you. And talk to us a little bit about, first of all, the venue. Why did you choose to be here? And where are you based in uh, Kuala Lumpur? Okay, let's talk about first being based in Kuala Lumpur. And let's be honest, home is home, you know. I could easily go elsewhere, but I felt maybe it was an external force saying something, but I said I had to do something in Kuala Lumpur. So that's why I'm still here. In regards to the location, as cliche as it sounds, the location found us. Okay. Yeah. So again, through meeting of a family friend kind of thing, uh, they said, oh, my daughter has a cafe. Is in this building. Can you go and see her? She needs some help with her drinks or in a, a general F&B operations. I said, okay. As a close family friend, I will go and see what I can do. And through that, I got introduced to the building owner who was also involved with that business. And then he said, hey, there's a, there's a empty space downstairs. Maybe you know what to do with it. And that was the point of time which PDT was creating ways in the, in the world speak easy you know so we said let's jump on that trend so i got to know the space and then i went to carl and said hey i found this space uh, you think it's a good idea we were hesitant at first because it was something no one has ever done before we brought the idea up to the building owner and even he was like a bit skeptical because there was no outlet or no bar in care that could prove that this would work so we by hook or by crook, we, we said we need to do this because I was out of a proper bar job, had to resort to freelance kind of thing. But the itch, the itch of mixing cocktails was so great that I said, I need a bar. <laughs> Basically, okay, you have the venue, you have everything. How about the concept? How did you come up with the concept? And would you like to explain to us the name of the bar? And Okay, that's, that's a long one. So basically, when we got the space, tinkered with a lot of different ideas, like, doing a normal cocktail bar, 
we were doing a lot of research online, you know, from, of course, PDT itself to smaller bars that appeared in Melbourne, in uh, UK. So we drew inspiration. But we had to find something that kind of embodies personality. And how we did that was basically to understand who we were. Myself as Sean Chong, Carl as Carl Tu, what are our styles, uh, how can we create a space that allows us to express ourselves freely. So I'm more to the Japanese style. It's something that I am proud to pursue. Carl's a bit more westernized in his ways, uh, in terms of maybe technique, in terms of his thought process of how he creates cocktails. And at that point in time, again, was 2012 when we had the idea. We didn't know what the market wanted. And maybe, yes, as a business operator, business owner, maybe that was the poorest part of our building the bar. We didn't gather any statistics. No, we didn't talk to people. We didn't say, hey, what do you want in a bar? Because it was so new. Like, I don't think people actually knew what they wanted. So it was a huge risk. Do you think that if you would have done that research, would you would have done something differently and perhaps it wouldn't have been Maybe. as successful? Maybe. Maybe we could have even been more successful even faster. Ah, okay. Yeah. But yeah. we were really lucky uh, in terms of the business. We took off in three months and we broke even in two years. Ah, that's very, very unique. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We broke even in three years. And again, you've seen my bar. It's 25 seats. Uh we allow standing for people out there. Yes, we allow standing. So we are able to pack out the bar on Friday and Saturdays. That's mm. where we make our money. At the end of the day, we open the bar, yes, to make money. Uh, yeah, of not, course. Not, not the most important thing, but yes. Uh, but going back to your question, we wanted to embrace both the Japanese and the Western concept. We were researching and there was one phrase that actually caught on to us, which was promoted by Stanislav. Uh-huh. which was the omakase. Okay. Which is, I leave it to you. So, yeah. Ichiko Ichie. Ah, cl- classic yeah. stands uh, yes. chat. Yeah. yeah. So basically, through omakase, we were able to not only express ourselves freely, and that allows us to cleverly work our menu to allow us to learn. So even until today, we have cycled hundreds of classic cultures in our menu, uh, just so that we have a chance to mix them. At the same time, it allows the customer, the guest, to learn. So by asking them what you like, you like gin, you like whiskey, you like something sweet, sour, something strong, then we will go into the menu, first and foremost, to see whether there's anything that suits them. Like if they say, I want something whiskey and strong. So we recommend them something old-fashioned or Manhattan. Or if they want to say, I want something gin fruity. Then we may go a bit adventurous, maybe a twist on a classic like a white lady or a daiquiri, uh, those sweet sour cocktails. So it was really a long learning process. We really learned the palate of the local community, what they like. A lot of them still sweet and sour. But we were very, very lucky and very surprised that many of our customers in the beginning were actually traveled people. So people who were maybe studying abroad, in Australia, uh-huh. in UK, in America, or expats who are now based in Malaysia, who come again from Europe, from Australia, wherever, and they will come to our bar and order those classic cocktails because that's what they were familiar with. I think you can attest the same. Of course, yeah. Yeah. 
So they will be coming to our bar and really without our promotion, they will order all these classic cocktails, whiskey sours, uh, El Diablos, uh, martinis, dry martinis. It's so hard to find dry martini, good one here. So yeah, we were really lucky in a lot of sense. Do you think that reviews online helped you kick off your business? We, we spoke with a bartender previously, his name is Matt Wiley, and he said that every time when you open a bar, the moment that you got five-star review on timeout, that's when business started to work for him. Did you Do you find the same here in Kuala Lumpur? Uh, it was definitely helping. Mm. I mean, we're in the 2000s now. You're not in 1996, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, social media or media traction, for that matter, help businesses. But what I like to say is, until today, we do not manage any promotion in Nomagas in the Fishy. Like, everything is kind of organic. Uh, we don't have an Instagram page. The only page we have is Facebook that's meant for updates for people who have already been here. Okay. So we tell them, like, like our page, then you can know if there's guest shifts happening or we are traveling or the bar is closed. It's just for updates. But again, we're in the 2000s. So we didn't be a complete speakeasy. So we do engage with media, but more mainstream. Mainstream meaning magazines, uh, media channels, uh, not so much in terms of the social media at that time. Mm-hmm. So we did get in some notable publications, newspapers, The Star was one of them. Options was also a newspaper that was quite big at the time. Those helped. Those helped. Um, it, did, it did. So you mentioned uh, before that you took inspiration from industry leaders around the world, but you're very far away and disconnected from those markets in a way. So you mentioned Jimmy and PDT. Because yeah. it's in 2012, 13, 14, Facebook was just, uh, I mean, Facebook started, it was already strong at the time. Yeah. But, you know, it, it wasn't that you knew who's going to do what, right? There yeah. was a lot of research from your side. It was research from our side in terms of using the internet. Really, it wasn't even as much as travel. Because mm-hmm. even through the other world class, I mostly traveled within the region. Mm-hmm. So to Jakarta, to Bangkok, to Singapore. And Singapore was already starting to have these concepts a little bit. Um, hotel bars were picking up on the cocktail culture. I can't remember the timeline exactly, but yeah. for example, I vaguely remember one of the first bars I visited in Singapore was like uh, Orgo. Orgo, which were championing uh, different flavored margaritas. But yeah, gaining ideas for the bar was purely from the internet. It wasn't even as much as messaging people in that country to say, hey, what's going on in your country? I want to know. Yeah, it's more about looking for no, information. No, it's just, just looking for information, taking what we like. So as you can see, Omakase is quite eclectic. Uh-huh. It's not particularly Japanese. It's not particularly uh, European. It's a bit Oriental. We took a lot of things that we liked and we hoped it worked. <laughs> we really hoped it worked. Like We didn't know it was going to work. It's it's crazy to see how the industry has changed because, as I said, you started this bar in a day and age where you had to go and look for information. Nowadays, one can argue that we're in a period of time where people throw information at you. You know, it's like if you log on Facebook, there's a lot of people shouting, hey, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm Correct. doing. So you're constantly in the loop. Now, you open the bar, everything is successful. Did you have any major setbacks at the beginning or was everything relatively smooth? I think it was relatively smooth. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest setback was, of course, the cost. Like, cost of alcohol in Malaysia is not cheap. 
So we had to make sure like every month we were trying to get good sales so that we could pay off faster. And that's why we engaged from very early on guest bartenders. Okay. We were doing all these uh, activities uh, to kind of get promote people to come to the bar. It did help, especially when we got big names. Uh, we had Luca Cinali before, uh, thanks to Diageo World Class Program. We had people like Colin Chiao from Diageo as well, Angus Zhou from Taiwan, many, many. But basically, that we did activities mm-hmm. that uh, would promote our revenue. And for you, was it successful? Like having a guest bartender, did it bring more guests in? It was. It was for us. Because we were the only cocktail bar in KL for three years. Like between 2013 and 2016, we were the only one doing this kind of cocktail activities. So yeah, people were excited. Like, okay, omakase. Oh, new guys coming. Let's go. Let's go. And then end of 2015 was the start of the cocktail bar boom in, in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, but yeah, in terms of setbacks, we were pretty okay for two years. The setbacks only come after three years, to be honest. Yeah? Yeah. Because I think it's not just in Malaysia, but everywhere in the world. Of course, there are different business regulations and all these kind of things. After three years, your business is kind of stabilized. So then you're subject to taxation from the government. There are certain license regulations you need to adhere to kind of thing. There are more corporate things Corporate shit you need to deal with. Of course. Yeah. So dealing with auditors, you know, making sure your books are right, making sure your business isn't going in the right direction in a numbers way. So that's that's the reality of having a bar business, the numbers. Mm. Like if you don't have that, you're dead. So Absolutely. In, yeah, making sure those are sorted is kind of a... It was a really steep learning curve for me. Carl and I knew we can make great drinks. Okay. Yeah. We're just feeling around of how to do business. We were learning as we go. So when those things start to hit your business, it takes away the, your attention from the business. But you still need to maintain it on both ends. So I wouldn't say so much as a setback, but it was definitely a challenge. Mm. Yeah. So setbacks will be in terms of certain months that you would have to pay a certain tax. So that will affect your cash flow. And we're a small business, you know, we don't have hundreds of millions to spend. <laughs> so every little every little dollar actually helps the business. So you stabilized the business. What was your next step once Omakaze and Appreciate started to function? We tried taking the next step. We tried opening another bar. Uh, it was Sparrow. But it was in a different location, a different time. Because... 2016 was the year when bars just started to open. So we kind of felt that, okay, we need to do something as well. So we tried opening a new bar. Uh, Unfortunately, circumstances were not in our favor. So we closed that business after a year. It was just different business. I think we didn't learn from our mistakes in a way that we didn't uh, (laughs) obtain any statistics going into that business. We had a hunch, we had an idea, and we just went into it. So 2016 was not an easy year for both businesses because 2016 was also the year that the government implemented GST. Sorry, okay. it was 2015, but it was taken into full effect. Like you felt the full effect of uh, in 2016. So that's uh, just the added percentage. Added percentage. Check. Yeah. yeah. So that kind of affected business. Uh, 2016 economy in Malaysia was not doing too well either. 
So that kind of dampened uh, business as a whole. But it was mind-boggling to see that bars were just opening almost every month. Despite the fact that the economic situation was not great. Yeah, it was not the best. It was not the best. Did many of those bars uh, close or did many of them stick? Some of them are still alive. How many have closed, I don't know. Because like the, the, the industry here is boomed, right? Now you've got your own bar show as well. I don't know, is it like a awards? Like yeah, we got, have the KL yeah, Bar Awards. KL bar I award. mean, we have enough bars. We have enough movement in the alcohol scene for the bar awards to recognize us. So that's a good thing. But yeah, I'm really... In, Sorry to be naive in that sense, but uh, I'm not really sure how many are open, how many no, are closed. No, 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 no. It's just a question. No worries yeah. about it. But you opened this, this new place, and I have strong admiration for the people who manage to understand that they have to close something, right? Because sometimes happens that you open a business and you believe so much in it that you keep going for it until yeah. it not only closed, you have to end up closing a new bar, but you have to close the old bar too, right? right? So having said that, I have a strong admiration for it. Is there any stage where you decided, okay, now I have to try this again? Yes. There's always an inkling feeling of not admitting defeat. Okay. So you want to try something. But it wasn't until two years later. Okay. Technically one year. But, and I say technically is because in 2017, I was approached by another friend who said they had an op- opportunity to run a space. You know, and they wanted me involved. And they knew I was already done with Sparrow. And I didn't have another bar business yet. I said, is there something you would like to explore? So in 2017, I was consulting for them to run a vermouth bar in an area called Bangsar. So is it close a, to the city center? or Not outside? too far. It's about 5-10 minutes drive from the city center. No traffic. So yeah, that was kind of dabbling into whether I really wanted to open another bar. And when the chance came, uh, unfortunately again, there was a kind of a setback. We didn't do too well with the relationship with the landlord. So we opted to move out. But this friend who approached me uh, didn't want to give up. I think because it's his first bar business. Ah, okay. So, so yeah. I said, hey, Sean, can we, can we continue to try to do this? I said, okay, let, let's try. So we found another location, uh, made me a partner. And yes, uh, we now have a bar called Lost Flower Packer. Okay. It is a Latin American vermouth bar at the moment in Damasara Uptown that has just been open mid of last year so about six months now so yeah two businesses Uh, I don't know I think personally I've been bitten by the business bug I'm always trying to think of something I can do in the industry for the industry so in fact I also have my own academy and how did you come up with the idea of that was it just purely you wanted to give back to the industry partly yes I think how the idea actually came together was not in the best form. What I mean by that is we have a lot of cocktail bars opening in Kuala Lumpur. We have our own guests who come to Makasi Appreciate. They know what we do. They would be going to these other bars. And because we already set the benchmark, so to speak, for cocktails, they would come back to us and give us their feedback. Some positive, some not so positive. And the not so positive one is the one that kind of irked me mm-hmm. because yes on a on a smaller picture as a business it's like yes the competitor is not doing well but on the bigger picture it's like okay you can't even get a simple good old-fashioned in another bar so what does that say about the standard of drinks or standard of cocktails in Kuala Lumpur it's bad so that's where it sparked me to say 
okay, I think I need to try to do something here. And I failed to mention, but in 2011 to 14, I was actually a young lecturer in Sunry University. And that's where I gained uh, lecturing uh, experience. Mm -hmm. I was championing the beverage studies syllabus for the diploma level. So I was involved with teaching wine, spirits, a little bit about beer, and even coffee. So with that lecturing experience combined with what I know as a bartender by relearning my craft in Nomakasi and Appreciate, as well from the business side of things that I've learned, I wanted to bring that all together and put it into a platform. So that's where I uh, started Rad Academy. How's the, the academy structured? In the beginning, we tried to courses once a month. So we were featuring the Rad Junior Bartender course, which was basically a foundation course developed by my personal experience as a bartender. What you should learn at the very basic level and a little bit of intricacies of, of technique here and there. So yes, I tried to run that once a month. So it's only a one-day course, uh, which you learn about six, seven hours. Very comprehensive and a bit heavy for some people because I also get consumers who sign up for the course. Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, because at that point in time, like because customers come to Mokase, they go to other bars, it looks interesting. So they want to learn. So yeah, I do get quite a number of consumers who sign up for my courses. And for them who are not from the industry, it's very knowledge and technical heavy. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know if they learn if they remember everything. You mentioned education with consumers, and you mentioned the fact that at the very beginning you worked a lot with expats and people from abroad. During your six years here, have you noticed a shift towards the clientele? Have you noticed like that you're engaging more with locals, or is it still uh, working a lot with uh, with the expats? I would say it's now about a 50-50. Okay. Still more locals. So I think maybe 60-40. Uh, locals, uh, really, they, they're just interested with, with mixed drinks, new concepts. Uh, I think because younger generation, attention span is not so great. So uh. they always want something new. And in fact, for Omakase, I think one of the reasons we're still alive, we change the menu so frequently. In the first two years, we change our menu every month. It's so only 12 menus a year. Yes. So all those only 10 cocktails, like two specials and three classic cocktails per bartender. But we, we changed the menu every month for the first two years. And then we got, <laughs> we got tired a little bit, but also everything just worked organically because we will feature the menu. And because we had loyal guests, we will post it on our Facebook page. They will see a cocktail, but they just don't have time to come see it or come taste it. And then by the time they come, the menu's over. So now we've found a sweet spot of between six to eight weeks. Okay. So, so it's still a lot. Yeah, we still change the menu every six to eight weeks. This is apart from the makase, the off-menu stuff that we do. That's yeah. crazy. So you found this way of keeping engaged with your uh, customer base, right? Yes. Just change menus change menu. and menus. How oh. do you go about building the menu? Do you have a set structure? or No, we don't. Well, the structure on the menu, yes. We always have two specials per bartender. Uh, we've changed the classic cocktail part a little bit so that we learn faster as well. Previously, it was three per bartender. Now, it's like 10 uh, or 12 spread across two bartenders because even after six years, we haven't learned everything. So, there are still classic cocktails we want to learn. We put that inside. 
And also, again, just to test waters with the consumers, what they like, what they don't like. So yes, it's a way to engage how we draw inspiration from reading a classic cocktail book. You know, okay, I want to twist that cocktail. Or, oh, I've seen this cocktail in world class or this competition. Maybe I can do my own take on it. Or as simple as walking down the supermarket. I never used this before in the, in the cocktail. So let's try. You mentioned that uh, your career kicked off with the moment that you were exposed to international travel and, and the fact that you could reconcile this uh, work and travel, right? Yes. Has traveling changed the way that you develop drinks or has it changed the, fundamentally your product beyond giving you the initial inspiration? Well, it's definitely changed because when you travel, you're exposed to different people's ideas. Like, even though I would be quite familiar with my own local flavors, but if I travel to Singapore, maybe some other bartender, because of his experience, uses that product differently and say, oh, wow, I never, I never thought to use it that way. I go to Bangkok, you know, and again, because their flavor profile or their food culture is a bit different, that the way they think about flavors is a bit different. They say, oh, yeah, we have all those ingredients in Malaysia too, but I never thought of using that in a cocktail like that. So yes, travel definitely opened up uh, learning of flavors. Not so much cocktail structures, but yeah, flavors. That's very interesting because some people say, the more I travel, the more I realize that what I'm doing is unique to my market, so I need to stick to it. And your approach is the opposite. Like the more I travel, the more I see, the more I can bring back to yes, my bar. Yes, correct. So after that, do you have any more plans of opening new venues? Or is this something that for now is your itch uh, like I don't think the scratched? itch is tamed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think the itch has been tamed yet. But being realistic, we j I just opened a new one, so let that stabilize first before I venture into anything else. Because I think personally, I'm a bit of a control freak. Uh-huh. Uh, like I like to take care of the operations, so I'm only one person. I can't split myself too many ways. So two bars is already taking a lot of my time. Uh, I do help to consult one or two other venues, but I don't need to be there 100%. But yeah, if I open another bar, I have to make sure both are stabilized before trying another one. Cool. So I'm going to ask you the last question. It's a question we ask everybody. If you had to choose your very last drink, what would that drink be? My very last drink, as in cocktail. Could be anything. Could be literally anything. Could be a beer. That's a very difficult question. Like a last drink before I die? Yes. Please don't die. So <laughs> like, I'm not suggesting you should. I really don't know how to answer that. I'll give you some examples. For instance, I had a friend who interviewed and he said, rather than the last drink, it would be the last person I would like to have a drink with and I would like to have a drink that suits this person. So that's what was the things he said. Okay. But it could be anything. If you don't feel like answering, it's fine as well. I think if the last drink I would to have would be a very fresh, cold pint of Guinness. Guinness? Yeah, Guinness stout. How come? You really like Guinness? Yeah, yeah I'm a Guinness drinker. So for me, I can drink uh, a pint of Guinness in five to six cups. S sips. Oh, there yeah. you go. Yeah, so no, I, I like my Guinness. You're a Guinness, a Guinness smashing machine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It was amazing You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thanks for your time. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Sean. 
You can find more content from us on YouTube and Instagram where we post our hashtag Classic Tuesday videos where every Tuesday we show you how to make classic cocktails in less than a minute. We are unjiggered under dash media on Instagram and you can follow our accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Besser for Adrian. Thank you for listening. See you next week.